old school. Yeah, old school. We the old school. Yeah, old school. Been getting that money for a girl sweet as honey. Got me some roses and a little bling. I knocked on her door, she said, what you wait for? I heard you was looking for a king. You're back in the hit factory. You're back. Election day is looming. It's coming in like a like a cold, damp, dark fog. It's coming in hot and sweaty. Yeah. It's coming in eight hour lines oh boy. to vote. Yeah. It's coming <laughs> in uh ballots being thrown out because uh you folded your ballot uh, hot dog ways instead of double hamburger. It's a nightmare, is what we're trying to say. It's it's a big clusterfuck. Where are we? I don't know. But one thing that the election season does offer is a chance to revisit a fascinating film. An underrated film. Highly underrated. I think that we would both say unequivocally a film ahead of its time. This film could be talking about today. Well, that's what I was going to say. Ahead of its time, but unfortunately, completely timely. And relevant to today's political landscape. Totally evergreen. Yeah. Ahead of its time and totally timeless. <laughs> I I have to say something to you, Carly. I am a Warren Democrat. And of course, when I say that, I'm talking about the good Warren. Warren Beatty. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Yes. A Bullworth Democrat. A Bullworth Democrat, if you, if you will. I think it's fair to say that the Hit Factory Collective are Bullworth Democrats. Yes, all two of us. <laughs> There's more. We're growing. Maybe. The family is is bigger than that. By the way, we're talking about Bullworth today. That's exactly where I was going. If you hadn't <laughs> guessed already, we are discussing Bullworth from 1998, written by, directed by, and starring Warren Beatty. 60 in this movie and still super fine. Yeah. And from the looks of it, based on Bullworth and, and just some of the rest of his career, so tapped in politically to all of the deficits and all of the terrible trends of 90s neoliberalism and Clintonism that was pervasive in the Democratic Party. It's uh, prophetic, almost. Like, it, it's it's wild. Like Prophetic is, I think, the thing that makes this movie special is that Warren Beatty has gone on record many times as saying that he is saying exactly what he wants to say. He is not pulling any punches as Jay Bullworth and it's refreshing to see it on screen and to hear political discourse that rings true coming from an old white dude. You know, like yeah. watching it this go round in 2020 with the election nigh made the movie so much more potent than I ever understood it to be when I watched it as a child. While we were watching this movie, you saw me on several occasions just mouth agape at the things that Warren Beatty was saying. The political commentary and the incisive evaluation of what was going on in the Democratic Party in the late 90s and what remains a lot of the major issues with this sort of neoliberal corporatist establishment democratic mindset. All of those things were just astounding. I could not believe I was seeing it and I can't believe that it was coming from a film made in 1998. What's almost more, more amazing is that it's clear in reading interviews and hearing Warren Beatty's commentary on politics longer term, even outside of the film, that he's felt this way for a really long time. I think a really appropriate choice for us to be discussing. Yeah, we we cycled through a couple of different ideas for what to do pre-election. I'm going to give a shout out to my time capsule playlist on Spotify because up popped up Ghetto Superstar and I was like, <laughs> we should do Bullworth. What if we did Bullworth? It was some sort of divine intervention. <laughs> it totally it, it was. It must have been. Because, yes, you know, all of the other ideas we had 
some other really fun, entertaining, lovely movies that are politically adjacent. But this is maybe the only one that I think is actually politically salient. And even I didn't remember what the politics of this movie were because when I watched it, I was like 12 or 13 and didn't understand a single fucking word of anything that was coming out of his mouth. I just remember like watching this movie and liking it and liking Warren Beatty and, you know, liking Halle Berry and all the other actors in it and thought like, yeah, that'll be a good movie. Okay. And it was. And it was so good for a multitude of reasons. I think before we get into it, because there is a ton to talk about here, we should just give some quick rundown and a brief synopsis so people know what the hell we're talking about if they have yet to watch the film. Let's do it. Let's rock and roll here. As we've already said, Bullworth, which was released in 1998, is written by, directed by, and starring one Warren Beatty. The film was co-written by a man named Jeremy Pikeser. Not much of a resume beyond this film, hmm. um, but collaborated with, with Beatty on the project. Two other very famous screenwriters at some point had hands on this and did advise or, or had actual rewrite privileges on it. One is James Toback, who wrote Bugsy. Another great Beatty film. Yes. And the other is uh, the icon of neoliberal media hackery himself, Aaron Sorkin. I mean, the man can write politics. He certainly knows what he's talking about. He knows about. what he's talking about. Like, he paid attention during his, like, AP Gov course, right? <laughs> he did, and, and his, then he wrote The, the West right. Wing. And The West Wing is probably best as a civics lesson, not as a political strategy lesson. No, absolutely not. As eight years of Barack Obama and a bunch of wonks who all fetishize The West Wing taught us. Look, I love The West Wing. I think it's a, a very entertaining show. I don't love it because I align with its political messages, but I love a good speedy walk and talk. Yeah. Aaron it, Sorkin walk and talk. It has <laughs> an ineffable charm to it. It is really, really fun to watch. It flies by even for being pretty lofty in terms of its ambitions of trying to teach you something and talk about the way that our government functions and... Anyway, we could spend an entire episode on Aaron Sorkin. We probably will. We'll do A Few Good Men or... Uh, we absolutely will. Yeah, or An American President or something like mm -hmm. that later on. And, and we will go go long on Sorkin and his politics in the 90s. Okay, so Sorkin touched the script and then was like, this is too socialist. I gotta go. I have <laughs> a feeling that he may have juiced up some of the dialogue and the back and forths mm -hmm. in this movie because there is a lot of good character stuff going on even devoid of the messaging and the political bent of the film. Like there is some good kind of interactions. That's there. true. I feel like there's a lot of Sorkin stuff coming through in Oliver Platt's character. He was the one I was going to say, absolutely. So the film, yes, like we said, has a great cast. Ollie Platt being one of them. A great Ollie Platt. A great uh coked out sort of campaign manager advisor who also works with Joshua Molina who is a future West Wing alum as Will Bailey. Will somebody. Show. Will Bailey, I think okay. is the name. <laughs> um, but, you know, the the real stars of the show here are Halle Berry, who shows up being smoking hot as always. Smoking hot. I don't know. She's ultra magnetic and doesn't really say a lot. Like she is sort of this like object of, of affection from afar that is unattainable that Beatty chases and she manages to like make us want to chase her everywhere that she goes. I was thinking about how long she was actually on screen in the movie and I think it's probably no longer than like 20 minutes. Yeah, she has one great speech in the back of a car. She has a couple of like flirty moments in bars and then at the end she has like a nice long kiss and calls Warren Beatty the n-word. Yep. And that's pretty much her run in the movie. But she's a total scene stealer. She is. Even when she's not on screen, you're thinking about her. Yeah. She is one of multiple people in this movie who, if not already stars, would go on to be. Don Cheadle being another one. One of my favorite Don Cheadle roles, to be honest. It is honestly, I think, one of his best performances. And everything he's done since then always seems to try to go against type of this particular character because this is, for all intents and purposes... Like a little bit more of a stereotypical South Central gangbanger kind of character. But he does it really well and 
he's very menacing. The thing I like about his character in Bullworth is that he is menacing, yes, but Beatty and Cheadle manage to still make the character someone who you're vaguely rooting for to a certain degree and is, also yeah. have a sense that he has purpose about him, even if it's a menacing purpose right. or one that goes against what the written laws may be. I, I really, really appreciated how nuanced he played the character, even though the character doesn't have a lot of screen time. He gets some good some good dialogue in there. Yeah, he's great. My favorite thing about the Don Cheadle performance is that he is not straining to find the worst Cockney accent of all time as he is in uh, Ocean's Eleven and all subsequent films. You don't love that about Ocean's? That Don Cheadle is just like raging on a, on a British accent? A pinch. A pinch. A pinch, mate. Uh, yeah, it's I, I, I like him a lot in this movie. Um, elsewhere in the film, you've also got uh, Jack Warden, who we spent some time with already in While You Were Sleeping. Mm-hmm, that we did. As the patriarch of the Callahan family, if I'm remembering that correctly. Paul Sorvino's here as well. We've also seen him before in The Firm as a mob boss. He's a... Uh... Not that different in this movie. No, he, he's just another kind of criminal. The fact that Paul Sorvino never wound up on The Sopranos, I think, is one of the one of the strangest things about him and that program because he belongs there in some capacity. Maybe sure. maybe he was too much that <laughs> already. You're typecasting, Mr. Sorvino. Well, he managed to typecast himself, <laughs> I think, but always does a bang up job. He does. He does. He's always he's always very good in those roles, and when you see him. He is uh, the eternal, eh, that guy. Eh, that guy. You know, you point him out and you're like, I, I know that guy. I see him everywhere. Yep. And then one of the other ones in this, uh, Sean Astin, a really young Sean Astin. I, I guess this is post-Rudy, but obviously pre-Lord of the Rings at the turn of the next uh, millennium. Mm-hmm. Our, our own little Samwise Gamgee. He also doesn't say much in this movie. His character's plot line is very obviously cut and stripped away from the film in the final edit. Mm -hmm. There is a completely inexplicable interaction between him and one of these girls that is sort of in uh, Beatty's entourage who they meet at a club and like follows them around. At the end, they're like getting stoned together outside of uh, media appearance talking and you hear him talking in the background and it seems like the only reason they left it in is because the audio tracks in the film itself has scenes where you see the two of them interacting and gives them something to cut to so that they can... To uh, kind of punctuate the action. To punctuate the action and the chase scenes. But I have no idea what that part of the movie was about. I'm convinced that his character ended up with one of the two women that immediately like take to Bullworth and bring him to the club that first night. I'm, I'm totally convinced that there was like a love something there that like at the end of the movie the two of them like make some sort of a connection or all three maybe there's like a thruple situation going <laughs> there might on. Be. this movie maybe that was too progressive for the time period likely yeah you can only have uh, monogamous interracial relations happening that's that's the crew elsewhere some some bangers here ennio morricone is composing the score when you know that it makes sense right away when you listen to the music again. It's like, oh yeah, of course that's Morricone. I couldn't believe that. And then I thought about it and was like, that sweeping orchestral kind of rush of strings that comes in at the end of the movie is so Morricone. It's not something you think about because the score of this movie isn't talked about as much as the soundtrack is, which we'll get into. Right. But just warms my heart, warms my heart that he scored this movie. This film has an interesting legacy. It was relatively well received by critics. It was nominated for the Oscar and the Golden Globe for Best Screenplay. The Golden Globes also nominated Beatty for Best Director and Best Actor. I think it even picked up a Best Picture nomination in the okay. Golden Globes. Um, didn't win any of those things at all. The film also was not a particularly big commercial success. It, I think, ran, ran up a, a $30 million budget. Barely made that back at the box office. Despite that, its influence is still there in, I think, the political circle at large. And also because of, like we said, the soundtrack. Barack Obama, apparently, in 2013 was reported as often joking in his second term after he was reelected 
of quote going Bullworth and just starting to like really speak truth to power. At that point, I feel like he was so in the pocket of that power that he was supposedly going to speak to that I don't really know. I don't know about that. How effective he was going to be at that. But it's a nice uh, idea. Yeah. I do think that um, part of the reason, I think there are a couple of reasons this movie didn't do well. Um, one is that it is a rather progressive message that Beatty slash Bullworth is delivering and not one that a plebeian American consumer populace right. would, would necessarily want to swallow. The mouth-breathing public... I uh, didn't of, want to see this one. No, and on top of that, it was a it was a 20th century Fox movie, and Beatty like had gone on record um, noting that he really wasn't getting kind of the marketing might behind the movie. That shocks me that Rupert Murdoch <laughs> wouldn't like a movie Good. that bemoaned corporate interests taking over politics. I know. He's such a communist, that Murdoch. Right. He's a very progressive person. <laughs> uh, he's never litigious at all in any ways. And I think that you know, judging by his networks, he's certainly in the corner of caring for the most people and their well-being as working class Americans. Yeah, he's right? not a capitalist at all. Nope. Um, so the, the lack of advertising dollars, which Beatty had said, you know, at the time, is really the only way that you can get foot traffic into a movie, he just wasn't getting it from the studio. And he made a splash other ways with the soundtrack, which I think we can talk about later. We but should we'll talk about it right now. Let's talk about it right Because actually, the legacy of this movie, I think, endures with a lot of people who are of maybe the MTV generation. Hand raise. That was you. It was on my fucking time capsule playlist. Right. It seems like that kind of gave Beatty and the film itself an avenue through which to market and give them an audience, which I think is maybe the reason that it did even as well as it did. Granted, it's still probably considered a flop by general standards, but the fact that it was able to earn back its budget and was seen by the youth, who are really the people that this movie is messaging to yep. in a lot of ways, is certainly a positive. I went and saw this movie because of the Praz single. I That is why I saw the movie. The thing that a lot of people don't know about Warren Beatty is that he was actually really entrenched in the hip hop scene for years prior, um, was just like really fascinated by it and just a voracious consumer of the music, the culture, the language, and like had a lot of clout among some really important figures in the hip hop scene, like Suge Knight, for yeah. example, of Death Row. And, and also Russell Simmons and, and some other people who admired Beatty for his acting track record and also for his politics, I think. And so when you look at the soundtrack and the roster of songs and artists that populate the sonic landscape of this movie, and you know that Warren Beatty is a person who took that space very seriously and approached it really lovingly, it doesn't feel like it's checking a box. Like, oh, we're talking about the black population of America, so we've got to score the movie with hip hop. Right. He's really deliberate in in the music he uses in the film. And it doesn't feel like a cash grab or a marketing ploy in any way. The movie itself is very steeped and entrenched in the political discourse, specifically as it pertains to globalization affecting the urban sectors of our society, the way that that's disproportionately affected and disaffected the black population, driven them into, pro into poverty. The, you know, they don't go explicitly into like the crime bill or welfare reform or those things, but it is stuff that was being talked about by Beatty in a lot of the press junkets and the conversations he was having publicly about the film and about the Democratic Party. So I think that these people like sniffed Beatty out and saw something really genuine here. Like he was on the cover of the Pross single, like in his Bullworth gear. Like he, and he was on the cover of Hits Magazine yep, as well. that he was. Along with like Pross and Capadonna and Rizza and a couple of others. Like the guy was actually actively involving himself in the political conversation in the hip hop community and in the black community at large. And I think the soundtrack is why there is a formidable imprint on people my age. I remember the music. I remember seeing the Praz music video and seeing clips of Bullworth in the music video. And as I said, the reason I saw ever saw the movie was because of that single. 
I do want to give a shout out to Praz. He is the third and least known member of the Fugees. That's right. Um, but this single ghetto superstar that he had with ODB and Maya, which was uh, the thing that really catapulted her career, made the Billboard Hot 100. And it was at, it peaked at number six okay. in June, right after the movie came out. So again, like the reverberations of the movie in other aspects and other medias of American culture, I think are are formidable and should not go unnoticed because a lot of the reason that this movie even is on our radar is because of those things, yeah. not because we went and saw it in theaters and had a moving political experience. And that's so interesting too, I think, because... Like I already mentioned, this particular generation of American youth, like this millennial generation, are the ones who are having this political conversation in the discourse now. Our parents, who were, you know, the target demographic for an R-rated film in the 90s, are not people who are critically evaluating Clintonism and the neoliberal takeover of the Democratic Party post-Bush and Reagan, totally. right? They are people who are, you know, like a lot of generations do, growing more conservative by the day. They're the reason that we have Joe Biden as our Democratic elect uh, right now in our nominee for the presidential race. Well, and, you know, that happens, that happens with most generations, right. but... Uh, it's happening less with millennials and it's certainly happening less with Zoomers. Right. The thing that maybe doesn't hold up is Beatty's kind of awkward rapping. Yep. It feels <laughs> very like bad conscious rap, you know, mm -hmm. but the soundtrack is there. Like the political narrative is still spot on. Spot on. And when you start to learn more about the politics of Warren Beatty himself and the mechanics behind this movie, it actually makes the movie that much more interesting and also makes me dismiss some of his awkward old white guy rapping. Absolutely. It, as <laughs> as like a metafiction that is really just saying like, oh, this is Beatty playing himself as a potential California senator or as a California senator up for re-election, I should say. And I also think there's something to be said about him purposefully delivering the lines awkwardly because he knows that that is what a person like Jay Bulworth would do. Yep. He wouldn't just like start spitting on a mic like Praz, right? Like he... He does a lot of acting to like make it seem that he's stumbling through the process but that he is mostly hitting the rhymes. Not everything works. A little bit of his is kind of flat and jumbled. But there's an up. earnestness there to is. it, which makes it feel genuine. We should go into a brief synopsis. Yeah, let's talk quickly about what the movie is about before we talk about what the movie is about. I will quote a line from a New York Times interview, a beautiful piece uh, written contemporarily to the movie's release, where Beatty talks about the fact that he pitched the movie to Fox really high level. He basically says it's about a man who calls a hit out on himself, then falls in love, and then tries to call off the hit. That is honestly what the movie is about. That is what the movie is about. What Warren didn't tell the studio. What he didn't tell Fox is that it is about this man not only falling in love, but coming to terms with his own disillusionment and frustrations with a political machine that he has been a part of for the better part of his adult life. And really starting to come into contact with the truths about that machine and speak those truths mm -hmm. and do it very publicly at rich brunches and churches and uh, people's houses. And news appearances. And news appearances. And also in the back of limousines with Halle Berry. Right. Which is where all great political discourse <laughs> eventually goes. Totally. A girl can dream. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. Anyways, that's the synopsis. That's the movie right there. That's the basic arc of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like you said, the, the movie is maybe not Bullworth starting to reckon with the truths of the Democratic Party. I think it's it's more what you said after that, the latter, which is starting to finally vocalize those truths. It's him. why he's suicidal at the beginning of the movie. Right. He can't bear the artifice or the equivocating that is required of a politician in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's he's seeking his soul's salvation by the end of this. 
And lo and behold, he starts to make some strides and becomes insanely popular by being a person who starts to speak truth to power. There is, of course, a very obvious proxy to Bullworth in modern politics. Whom could that be? I'm going to say right off the bat, because maybe it needs to be said to a lot of idiot corporate pundits, it's not Donald Trump. No, (laughs) definitely not. Both of them are loud and speak their mind. But the person most obviously that Bullworth resembles in modern politics is Bernie Sanders. 1,000%. Someone who is vociferously conveying his distaste with the current party. Someone who is fancying themselves an independent and trying to get corporate influence and money out of politics. Working towards a more uh, robust social safety net. Creating welfare programs. Getting people single-payer health care. And Galvanizing a black population that has historically been disenfranchised and completely apathetic because a party has never done anything for them. Absolutely. Keep in mind, I'm going to say this here on the show, for anyone who's listening who doubts the veracity of that claim. Bernie Sanders did phenomenally well with the black population of America. Look it up. Youth voters, black youth, Bernie won flat out, even in South Carolina. Joe Biden took the larger portion of the population, which is older black voters. A much older black population. Who come out in droves in South Carolina. Particularly in primaries. So this myth that we've created that Bernie could not solidify his vote with people of color and black voters specifically, don't listen to it. Because Joe Biden does not have that much of an upper hand in that category either. But rather than relitigate the past and seem like I'm petty, I may even cut all this out. I just wanted to get it out there and say, don't for a minute think that Bernie Sanders didn't galvanize the black population or the Latino population who came out for him in record numbers, especially in Nevada, California. The man was saying something that resonated with working class Americans. He really was. And and he still is. And you see it happening in the movie with Bullworth as well. I think to really, really understand where we're at historically and why this critique feels so of its time and still so relevant today, we need to talk a little bit about the political climate of the decade. Let's get into it. So at the very beginning of this film, there is an inner title that sets the film in 1996. It uh, also says that, that Bill Clinton handedly wins over Bob Dole and that the American electorate is unaroused or unenthused. Unaroused is exactly what the American electorate was. Yes. And so uh, I did some digging to really understand Clintonism. And I think it's really important to understand exactly what America was experiencing under Clinton's sort of triangulated third-way politics. And it has to it has a lot to do to inform all of the movies we talk about on this podcast. Absolutely. This is a great one for us to get into it on. Yeah, especially because it is going so against the grain of, I think, the political, I'll say political theology mm-hmm. of the time, because it is, it's almost a religion to these people. Yep. Uh, but in order to understand it fully, we have to go a little bit further back, all the way to the Great Depression and World War II, right? Two massive moments in American history that led to the development of new economic models called the New Deal, creating a robust social safety net, job creation, GDP growth, a stimulated American industry. Mm -hmm. All of these things happening under FDR and basically discrediting the classical laissez-faire economics that had come before it. The thing that had led, honestly, to the market collapse and the Great Depression. Absolutely. So at this point, the Democratic Party accepts the fact that they need to start administering stricter controls on the markets and strengthening worker protections, right? This is what it's all about. Worker rights are a big thing that starts to go away gradually by the time we hit the 90s, and it's a constant conversation even today. Now, the success of this effectively created the American middle class. It's why the mid-century is and looks like what it does. When you watch television programs, when you watch movies from the era, it's why there's a Ford or a Buick in every garage. It's why people have their like cans of Budweiser and their fancy shiny new fridges. It's why they have their nice radios and television sets. It's literally 
the incepting moment for the American dream. Exactly. And the American dream rose out of the idea that a man could make anything of himself because they had strong worker protections and the opportunity to make an honest and really good living doing really anything, whether that's like working in a cannery or it's, you know, being an aeronautical engineer. Those things were relatively even on the playing field as opposed to the separation that we have today between blue collar and white collar. And it's also what led to the growth of suburbia because with a more financially stable middle class and a minimum wage that allowed people to buy a home, provide for their family, et cetera, et cetera. You've got more people moving into homes and buying homes and and providing for their family and expanding into new spaces. It was a new kind of manifest destiny for America. It was, exactly. Now, I don't want to try to paint a picture of complete euphoria and bliss because as we know, for certain people, it was not the case. Even in a time of economic growth, The New Deal fell short of reversing a lot of really noxious and terrible Jim Crow laws in the South, uh, leaving a lot of black people out of the worker protections and the rights granted to most of white working class America. And when you think about the expansion of suburbia, the thing that goes hand in hand is white flight from metropolitan areas. Precisely. And keeping urban areas densely populated, predominantly by people of color, and people who have lower incomes. And it's why you have a bunch of gerrymandering horse nonsense when it comes to to voting. Anyways, continue. Continuing. (laughs) So despite a couple of things that made this, like I said, not perfect and definitely leaving some people out, overall, the American economy was doing well and, uh, and workers were doing well. People were succeeding and the middle class was thriving. So despite the success of a lot of these New Deal programs, in the Democratic Party, there has always been a faction that has been vehemently anti-New Deal. They feel that it is unnecessary and counterintuitive and productive to create these social welfare programs that help people, that dissuade people from more individualistic tendencies and, and more aspirational goals of ever getting off the rolls of the government. A lot like what the the Republican Party says today, a lot of the conversations that happened about welfare queens and the like. Uh, These people saw an era following the 50s and 60s and the 70s where we had a major economic crisis called stagflation, where we had high inflation and high unemployment rates simultaneously and seized on it in order to blame New Deal programs. Um, So by the mid 80s in 1985, a gentleman named Al Fromm, along with One, Bill Clinton, who was just getting into his political career, and lots of other leadership of uh, this group called the Democratic Leadership Council, decided to start rooting New Dealers out of leadership positions and eventually just pulling them out of the Democratic Party in general. Democratic candidates and Democratic leadership became increasingly neoliberal, favoring free markets, economic deregulation, the stripping back of welfare programs, So when Bill Clinton gets reelected in 1996, he becomes the first Democratic candidate since FDR to be reelected after a full first term. His success and his reelection was exactly what the DLC and the anti-New Dealers needed to champion this new Clintonism, this new third way politics that sat somewhere between the right and the left right in the center, many of them at the time declared joyously that the New Deal was finally dead. Right. And a lot of the propulsion behind Clinton's reelection is coming from the economic boom of his first term. If we know one thing about America, it's that when the stock market and the economy and rich white people are doing well, usually the rest of the country isn't. And so, and I'm sure we'll get into this, when you get into uh, 94, 95, and NAFTA is ratified and things start to shift and and the uh, economy and the working class really starts to feel the pain that they weren't feeling as much 
earlier in the decade, that's when you have this shift that's happening in the background. So while people are saying Clinton's, you know, politics are the things that are saving us and look here, he's been reelected. This is proof that this is what America needs. Really in the background is this, is this tumult of things really starting to crumble. And when you give the wealthy the opportunity to be greedy, it creates a bubble. And bubbles only last for so long. Yep. So from 92 onward to the beginning of the new millennium, you do see a massive expansion in wealth, in the economy. Things look really good. And so people are being told to feel good about that. And Clinton had the good luck of being there at the advent of the tech boom of the 90s, which we know from history uh, was one of the first things to collapse. The housing market started doing really well as they deregulated here too and uh, stripped apart things like Glass-Steagall. During this time period too, as you already mentioned, Clinton pushes through NAFTA, which causes massive expansion and globalization of industry. And in reality, completely undermines workers' rights. But is really great for capitalists and people in power because it means that they can squeeze as much profit out of their workers uh, as they possibly can. And if they can't, they just move the factories elsewhere. Completely. And, uh, you know, deregulation elsewhere basically just forces poor people into the labor force so that they can, as Bill Clinton says, earn a paycheck, not a welfare check. All the while, the thing we are being told is that the way you make it in this country is by working hard in school. That's the narrative. Right. That's the meritocracy pantomime that we were all living in. Completely ignorant to the hard, cold facts that materially people were not able to do that. Right. It had nothing to do with how hard they worked in school. They simply didn't have enough to survive. And it kind of creates this sort of negative feedback loop of uh, neoliberalism, right? When you have a deregulated market and an emphasis on capital, 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 you start to fall into a space where you're deregulating things, union busting and destroying workers' protections, which creates rapid increases in the economic growth of the elite class. And then they take all of those new profits and funnel them back into legislative bodies. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's not uncommon today. Neoliberalism is still the philosophy, and we'll say it again, the theology that undergirds all of our political discourse and all of our political legislating today. And undergirds capitalism. In fact, during this time, poverty grew by 150%. So while things seemed from the graph that is rich people's feelings that we call the stock market, <laughs> like everything was going really well and people were stoked. Underneath it all, what was happening is a profound division and a growing gap in inequality and wealth. So by this point, like, how can you run as a Republican against a Democrat who is doing your job for you? The center is, throughout the 90s, moving increasingly to the right. Exactly. And you have a Democratic Party chasing after it. Yes. And so by 96, the election is a popularity contest, which... Bill Clinton wins against Bob Dole easily because the fucker is very charming. And Bob Dole, right? <laughs> Bob Dole. Like just Bob Dole talking about himself in the third person, holding a pen. Like he was just so, people were so ready to not like him. And especially standing up against, you know, Bill Clinton, who's charming and has by all accounts of the public... Uh, opinion and the public discourse saved the country from the 80s. Exactly. The man can play the saxophone. He can play the saxophone. That's why it's in the opening credit scene of the Animaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> we really cared about it. Um, I'm gonna, I know we've been going long on this conversation. I just want to say one last thing to bring it back to where we are today. And this is the reality of the situation is that the basic premise of Clintonism and throwaway politics were a lie. The DLC uh, did not have a grasp on and an understanding of the economics that were causing the major issues with the economy in the 70s. And it absolutely wasn't New Deal policies. During that time period, the things that actually were causing it were oil crises around the globe, wasteful war spending on Vietnam, 
Sound familiar? And one of the biggest things is that we had a ton of baby boomers and women now entering the workforce. Yep. And so there weren't enough jobs to keep up with the fact that more people were alive and ready to start working. So we just couldn't keep up with those things. The economy went to shit, but none of it was as a result of taking care of working class people. And that is proven out in spades when you actually look at how those people suffered over the course of uh, an administration that increasingly narrowed the scope of who it was helping. Mm -hmm. And it's why we have the infrastructure we have today and a working class that still doesn't have enough to take care of themselves. And so this movie speaks to all of those issues. Bullworth on several occasions comes out and says something to the effect, I think he first brings this up when he goes full tilt in the black church that he's supposed to be giving yep. a, a stump speech at. And he kind of just breaks it down and says, do you think the Democratic Party actually cares about you? Right. They don't. And the audience is sort of getting riled up and he's like, you guys don't have the money. We we need to raise funds in order to do politics. You contribute nothing to my campaign. Why would I do anything Why for you? Why would I as a politician do anything for you? And so he's speaking all of these really, these very well-known things, mm -hmm. right? That make politics run in this country, but that no one ever says out loud. And there's another point in the movie when he says something to the effect of, you know, he's talking about, yeah, the Democratic Party doesn't care about you guys, whatever, whatever. And then he asks the question, what are you going to do? Vote Republican? And that, that exact sentiment is a bell that rings in the ears of a working class, primarily BIPOC population yep. of America today. There is a... Joe Biden almost has said that verbatim. Yeah, I mean, he told Charlemagne the God that if you don't vote for him, you're not black. And 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 what Bullworth is saying there is basically like, we know we don't have to do anything for you because we know you aren't going to vote for the other You've guy. You've got nowhere else to You've go. You've got nowhere else to go. There's a very famous uh, Lawrence O'Donnell clip that has been circulating since the beginning of uh, the Democratic primary in which he says exactly that. If you don't show them you're capable of not voting for them, they don't have to listen to you. I promise you that. I worked within the Democratic Party. I didn't listen or have to listen to anything on the left in, while I was working in the Democratic Party because the left had nowhere to go. The Democratic Party will never cater to working class people and never cater to the left because they know that they won't vote the other way. The only option that they have and the only actual political recourse that they have is not voting and showing the Democratic Party that you won't vote for them if they don't meet your interests. The unfortunate reality is that not voting this election is largely benefiting a person who is an outright authoritarian and fascist. Yep. And so that choice has become really terrible. But it's a thing that has just encapsulated the entire argument for the Democratic Party hugging the center since this period of time. One of the core political themes of this movie is that the way that politics function in America, the corporatization of politics, the capitalist nature of politics, is such that it prevents anything new from happening or being made. It prevents truths from being told. It prevents people from being able to get their needs met. And it prevents politicians from actually serving the populace. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, they just serve the people who are lining their pockets. This has become a much more broadly discoursed theme in today's political landscape than it was 22 years yeah. ago. Well, it's easier to see, right? Like because of the internet age, we have access to a lot of these campaign finance records. Totally. And can really see just the extent to which this is a problem. It's a huge problem. But Warren Beatty was talking about it in 1998. Yeah. Bullworth was talking about it in 1998. What he argues in the movie and in a lot of interviews that he spoke spoken and even in that um, open letter that he wrote. Right. He published an op-ed 
in the New York Times. That's excellent. Maybe we'll just we'll link it in the show description because it's it's all about this. One of his main arguments in the movie is that this corporatization of politics and specifically this neoliberalism that is the driving force behind the Democratic Party of the 90s not only prevents um, new ideas and actual change from happening, but it's also the thing that makes more politicians from all sides of the spectrum alike than they are different. And also makes a working class population from all sides of the spectrum more alike mm -hmm. than they are different. And it's this narrowing of an aperture that we've talked about in a previous episode that shows up in the things that you're talking about and also shows up in some of the conversations he has with Halle Berry. I really, really love the materialist critiques of politics in this that come from Halle Berry and then are also adopted by Beatty uh, later on. They tap into, on multiple occasions, a lot of the reasons for why Black America is devoid of leadership and why the African-American community is impoverished and not able to lift themselves up and out. And Halle Berry's character has an amazing little monologue and speech. Why do you think there are no more black leaders? Some people think it's because they all got killed. But I think it has more to do with the decimation of the manufacturing base in the urban centers. An optimistic, energized population throws up optimistic, energized leaders. And when you shift manufacturing to the Sun Belt in the third world, you destroy the blue-collar core of the black activist population. But a lot of what she talks about is the overall message of the movie, which is globalization and like moving markets and industry out of America. Hashtag NAFTA. Yeah. Means that uh, urban centers are the most directly hit and specifically working class communities of black Americans and and other people of color. And she even goes so far as to say, some people think it's purely cultural, but it's not. It's about the economy. It is the economic processes that have been stripped from us. It's the economic opportunities that have been stripped from us. And it's the fact that the government doesn't take care of us with these programs like it used to that mean that we don't have anyone invigorated to leave. And she cites the boom of the New Deal and the commerce and job opportunities that came out of it and that came out of the war and Black people entering the workforce in droves in ways that they had never done historically mm -hmm. in this country as the thing that galvanized that population to then in the 50s and 60s start fighting for civil rights. And so this materialist perspective, this economic perspective is also the thing that runs through the racial discourse of this movie as well. Yeah. And Bullworth's conversation about race wasn't like anything else at the time. Totally. It actually is a conversation that happens so frequently on the left today, right? About advocating for class consciousness over cultural consciousness or over like standpoint epistemology and uh, essentialism. But I do love that this movie understands the intersectionality of those things, yeah. right? That it offers a perspective that both exists on a material plane and also a racial plane yeah. and understands that those two things work together in a white supremacist capitalist America. And it's one thing that I wish that more people understood in today's political climate. Uh, an emphasis on class politics and really leaning into this understanding of you know, what Marx and Engels were saying and, and, and understanding the, the differentiating factors between people within this economic strata does not mean that we're devoid of an understanding of the intersectionality of race or sex or the lived experiences of people who come from different backgrounds and who are from marginalized groups. Right. In fact, what it seeks to do is liberate people collectively by creating and generating a, a, a unified force behind that mutual understanding of those things. Precisely. There is a lot of really rich political critique in this movie. And there's also a lot of bringing things to an extreme point and oversimplification. But you can tell that Beatty is doing that for effect. He says something in an interview, and I can't remember quite what the words were, but he says something to the effect of like, you can say rich people run politics. It's an oversimplification, but it needs to be said. Right. And when you hear that phrase, it's an oversimplification, but it needs to be said, you understand Beatty's perspective. He knows that these things might be 
too sharp a point or maybe too extreme. But he also knows that they need to be discussed right. and that they need to be said outright because no one else is doing it. And I think it's part of the reason that the left today so readily latches on to oversimplifications and reductions of particular class politics and their ideas, right? The reason we say eat the rich is not because we actually want to like cannibalize like people out in the street. The last person I want to put in my mouth is Jeff Bezos, okay? <laughs> I mean, he he's certainly just very gamey and gross. It's like eating raw chicken. Ugh, it, you would look like the photo of Jeff Bezos eating that iguana. Oh my God. Eating Jeff Bezos. <laughs> no, but like you're, you're, you know, onto something there in that. It's a movie and a lot of times online, it is for a particular audience that needs to be brought in and stimulated by something that is catch-all, even if it's an oversimplification, because we, we work to understand the nuance. And, and it's also how you radicalize a totally catatonic populace, right? Yeah. You have to make extreme points. Otherwise, nobody's going to wake the fuck up. I think the other thing I really, really find fascinating about Warren Beatty's politics that are definitely apparent in this movie is you can tell that in the early days of his career or earlier days of his career, when he was actually working on Bobby Kennedy's campaign, mm -hmm. when he was actually working on McGovern's campaign, you can tell that there is an energy and an animation that Beatty is finding in politics, mm. particularly within campaigns of people like Bobby Kennedy or, or McGovern. And, and you can see that over the course of the decades following that that energy goes away and he really mm. starts to see the shifts that you're talking about for what they are and feels that he doesn't have a place in it anymore and instead wants to talk about the ways in which politics in America are failing Americans. I think it's it's easy to see Jay Bullworth as a radical by today's standards sure. and see the things that he is touting. And at the time of the film was being perceived as a radical, right? He even has like a funny moment where he, you know, says the dirty word, socialism. <laughs> but I think the thing that is really true about this is that Beatty's not so much a radical as much as he is just like the oldest guy on the team who remembers a different period. Absolutely. A man who grew up in the era of the success and growth of New Deal America. Single payer healthcare was on the table 80 fucking years ago. 80 fucking years ago. Like we were almost there. <laughs> and then it went away and slowly we had this rightward shift that occupied the rest of the century. The point is, Beatty is not advocating for something that is out of reach or impossible. What he's actually advocating for and what he's reacting to is that we are stripping away things that used to be there and that we could have grown and expanded upon. And so when people think of, you know, a Bernie Sanders platform or a Jay Bullworth platform as something really like really radical and reactionary, it is not. It is actually just a logical evolution of a thing that we once had. And it's what a lot of social democratic nations all over the world have already figured out and adopted. Like this is not novel, right? It's also highly patriotic because it operates on the idea that America can be this place we tell ourselves it is. It can be this place where everyone can have what they need because they are free in a way that isn't just on the plane of being able to wear the fucking t-shirt that I want to wear. Um, right. Or, but, or say the joke that I want or to. Or say the joke that I want right. to. We've atomized the American dream to the point of individualism where we basically say the American dream exists, but only for me and only if I fight for it. Instead of understanding that the collectivist approach to it is the most achievable. And Jay Bullworth, by that reading, is an insanely patriotic person. He starts the movie wanting to fucking kill himself because he's a political shill and ends up tapping into the truths he has known and really believing that this country can be as good as we say it is. And of course, it ends up getting him fucking shot. Yeah, by Big Pharma. By They, they go full network with the ending here. They go full fucking network. 
Yeah, I think it's it's really telling and really speaks to Beatty's point of view that Bullworth gets shot by an insurance man, right? right? By by big insurance, the people who are are lobbying for less protections for American citizens and more money in their pockets. By the entity that has the most power and the most to lose. Yep. And I think that's a really relevant close to the movie, Bullworth getting ostensibly murdered, we're not sure, but he probably does, by corporate America that ties back to the making of the movie and the marketing of the movie itself in the real world. Beatty mentions in an interview that, you know, he was sort of bemoaning the the fact that he wasn't getting the advertising dollars and the, the TV airtime um, from the studio. Because right. Murdoch was metaphorically shooting him from... Uh... From a high-rise somewhere. From from the grassy knoll. The the movie didn't get the kind of TV advertising and airtime it needed to get people out into the theaters. And so he has this line in an interview where he basically says, you know, the techniques that are available to me to getting a movie out are antithetical to making anything new. Mm. And that is precisely analogous to his perspective on politics and his perspective on neoliberal politics specifically. Right. That there's like absolutely no way to make any sort of trenchant and enduring mobilizing force because everything is so ingrained and like the status quo and the common knowledge and opinion have all shifted towards this thing that doesn't allow for any change. And more so that I'm so reliant on money, on capital, that it prevents me as a filmmaker or a politician from doing anything that strays from the thing that the people in power want and have wanted for all time. There's a a fascinating relationship that develops later in Beatty's life because of his support for campaign finance reform. He wanted to remove all corporate interests and all independent donation from campaigns wanted to, and he even advocates for this as Bullworth, give candidates public airtime and publicly fund elections. And a person who he found common ground with in his career alongside a political career is John McCain, of all people. Mm -hmm. Now, whether John McCain is somebody who would have actually ever succeeded at doing that thing is, I think, maybe beyond the point. I I think- It's questionable. Right. You know, there there's a lot about McCain that is now lauded and lionized by a particular cut of centrist Democrats, even though he's on the other side. He's sort of like the the model partisan in the sense that he's willing to reach across the aisle and work with people. But that honestly just creates this like constant and perpetual gridlock. You know, it, it, it doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't create any growth or progress. Beatty coins that that very thing as Clintonian bridge building. All this to say, Bullworth is a great movie. Insanely watchable. Not a well-made movie, perhaps, but a great movie. And very entertaining. And I think that the best place to close on is just bringing all of this back to the current moment. Because we are doing this movie as a response to the fact that in less than a week, we're going to have a new president of the United States or a second term of a terrible president of the United States. Regardless of who it is in power, I think that we have to acknowledge that it is not a person like a Jay Billington Bullworth. And it's certainly not a person like a Bernie Sanders. And you can laugh at me all you want and you can give me a hard time about it. I will forever be disappointed that we're not voting for that man in this election because he had something real to say and he had real aspirations that went beyond the status quo and beyond the same thing that we always get. It would have been for the first time in my lifetime and in a lot of people's lifetimes, I think, actually not a choice between the lesser of two evils, Mm -hmm. but between an evil and a genuine good and something that would have worked for us. And I think that that is ultimately the point of what Bullworth is about, which is that we have to get beyond the idea that politics has to be business as usual and has to stay what it is, and that we actually have to start getting creative and thinking about it in terms beyond that narrowing imagination of it isn't possible. 
all of the terrors that have been bubbling under the surface or that a good portion of the population that has controlled public opinion have not experienced or have ignored are now on the surface for everyone to experience and see, even people who have historically not. There's never been more proof that status quo is not an option. The wheels are turning. But do we have time is what I want to know. We may not. We may not. But I, you know, I I do want to say something before we close out, um, just because this is the largest platform that I have that isn't a social media account where all nuance is murdered in, you know, 140 characters or in a Facebook post or in an Instagram story. Yep. So I, I did just want to like maybe just say something about the election Here for and, it. and just genuinely heartfelt about Here for what, it. what I think is necessary for people to hear right now and my perspective on what's about to happen. Obviously, there is an election happening in a matter of days. In a matter of days, we will know the results. And at the level of president, I have never told anybody how they should vote. I have certainly told people in my sphere uh, who to vote for at a local level, you know, vote Jackie Fielder if you're in uh, San Francisco. Okay. Vote no on Prop 22 if you're in California because uh, fuck those guys and, and, you know, workers' rights, whatever. I will tell you all day how to vote for that. I have not and really still probably won't tell you how to vote for the presidential election. And people have gotten mad at me about that on social media that, you know, that I, I seem to not really have a dog in this fight because I know that it's bigger than that. And I recognize that, you know, despite my protestations, it is really a bipartisan race. There are two people and one of them is going to win. And so, you know, that being said, I hope Biden wins. I, I hope that that is where we are in a week from now mm-hmm. with a Democratic president. Mm-hmm. But... You know, I I need to ask something specifically of myself and of Carly and anybody else. I just need us all to honestly reflect on what a Biden-Harris administration offers us, genuinely. Because I know way too many people and I have seen too many posts and too many celebrity tweets that seem to want a Joe Biden and a Kamala Harris administration uh, and having them run our country so that they can have permission to sleep soundly at night. Yeah, and to stop caring about shit. Right, to unplug and to just generally disassociate and disengage from politics for a couple of years, four years, eight years, whatever. And if that's you, I need you to just be willing to acknowledge that. (laughs) Be willing to acknowledge that you want Joe Biden to be president so you can go to sleep. Exactly. I just, I that's all. That's all I want. Right? Is is just. Be honest with yourself that if that's really what you're looking for is a, is a, a reason and excuse to not pay attention anymore, and that's why you're doing it, just be honest about yeah, it. Yeah, let us know and tap out. Because on January 20th, 2021, if Joe Biden wins the presidency and assumes office, you and I may feel a little bit better, but there's still going to be a deadly pandemic claiming lives without a vaccine in sight. There's still going to be a predatory and noxious for-profit healthcare system that values insurance company earnings over people's lives, mm-hmm. leaves tens of millions of people underinsured or in coverage gaps. There's still going to be corporations uh, that attack workers' rights and protections, wringing every ounce of profit and productivity they can out of employees while demanding they work longer hours for lower pay and fewer benefits. There's still going to be half a million people living on the streets as we continue to cling to austerity and cut every element of this country's social safety net while financing half a dozen proxy wars around the globe to preserve American empire and to finance a deadly police state that overwhelmingly attacks black and brown bodies and incarcerates more people than any other country on earth. Mm-hmm. There's still a mounting existential climate crisis on the horizon. And it's going to affect our children's ability to survive on this planet into old age. While the president and his party continue to refuse to ban fracking or end oil subsidies or make any meaningful gestures towards a Green New Deal that could create jobs and preserve the habitability of this planet. All of these things are still going to be here after Inauguration Day. And so if you can sleep soundly at night knowing all of that, I envy you. I do. 
because I really can't because the play this there's still a lot of work to fucking do, you know? And so for the rest of us, I hope that this is a call to action to like legitimate political and civic organizing that extends beyond a ballot box that doesn't turn off every two years, every four years, every eight years. I really, really hope that this is a chance to make the country and the world a better place to ask yourself what kind of world you want to live in and to make it so. Because it's going to take mass mobilization on a scale that we have never seen before in this country. But I do think that we're capable of it. I know we're capable of it. And it's going to take a little bit of courage and it's going to take a lot of discomfort and a lot of reliance on our fellow man. And we're not used to that. But if you're up for the task, so am I. I think Carly is too. I will speak for her and say, so are we. Yeah. We'll see you out there. I think that is a perfect, perfect way to end on a question that Beatty asks himself um, in a piece from June of 98. Hit me with it. Right after the movie came out. He asks, when you have the freedom to make choices, what do you do? What are the choices you make? And that's exactly what we're saying. What kind of world do you want to live in? Go out and make it so. That's us. We'll be back. Hold on. We don't need no more ghosts. We need a song. You got to sing, Bulworth. You can't be no ghost, but you got to be a spirit, Bulworth. You got to be a spirit. And the spirit will not descend without us. Song. We need a spirit for work. Not a ghost. Not a ghost. Who won't pull work?